God speaks to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 3:18 through 4:7. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Janelle. That's Janelle. She's the one part of doing the training today. So you just look for her. We're so thankful for Janelle uh, and her uh, commitment to the church. She is one of our current deacon candidates and is a real blessing to us. And hope you guys will and will go down and do that training. Hey, my name is Zach. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I get to serve as the director of operations here for our Shawnee campus. And man, before we get in today, I want to back up just a little bit and put in another plug about that membership class. If you're a college student, I don't fall into the trap of, hey, I'm only going to be here for a few years. Man, come and be a part of a local church. It, you, can, you can do so much. You can make such a huge difference. There are story after story after story of college students partnering with this ministry and doing some really fantastic things. So don't think, man, I'm a college student and then I'm going to go do my, my, a job someplace or I'm going to move back home or whatever. Man, that is, don't, don't do that. Uh, root down, get involved in the church, come and be a part of that membership class, even if you're going to be here just for one year, okay? We'd like to encourage you to do that. All right, man, again, welcome. I'm so happy to be here with you today, and that's not just pleasantry. I'm not just saying that. It's really a joy to open this book with you and to just pray that it would transform our hearts and our minds. Uh, ben said last week that he was going to be on vacation in North Carolina, and man, this is that weekend, so I don't know if he planned to give me a message about being a fool or not, but it seems a little suspicious to me. Seems a little suspicious. But no, if you guys will pray for him, and specifically for revival and renewing in his heart. Man, that guy works really hard. He runs really, really far and really fast, and he needs a break, and I'm so glad that he's taking it. So 
If you would, in your prayer time this week, man, pray that that happens for him, that he would meet God in new ways, uh, that he would get the rest and relaxation, and that he would come back. On staff, we affectionately refer to charged up Ben as Coach Ben. And I don't know if you've ever been around him when he's like that. He used to be a baseball coach, and man, he just comes in hot. And we're, we're ready for that. He does a great job carrying the vision of the church. All right, let's dive in today. We're back in the third chapter of this book, and we've seen a lot of reoccurring things about leadership, about wisdom, about unity, and Paul is trying to wrap all of that up in uh, the end of the third chapter, and we're going to jump into the fourth. And he keeps telling the church in Corinth again and again that we're not supposed to have our identity in our leaders, and our leaders aren't supposed to have their identity in the people who they serve. And uh, he says, you know, not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas, and man, like insert whatever pastor name that you want to there. Right, we see so many divisions in, in American church culture today based on who you follow. And over and over and over again, I, I know that you've noticed this, but Paul keeps turning conventional wisdom on its head. He keeps turning it upside down. Over and over and over again, he's turning conventional wisdom in a way that is a fresh perspective that uh, the Corinthian church really hadn't thought about. And to be honest, many of us have a hard time comprehending, even though we've, we've had this scripture our entire lives. And, um, you know, he's... He's basically telling us that uh, everything that we know is, is folly. And he's used that word a couple of times. We're going to dig into that. Um, but remember, he's writing this letter to a church that is like firmly planted in the middle of a secular Greek city. We heard before that this is like if Los Angeles and Las Vegas and New York and Paris were kind of all rolled into one. That was the culture uh, or a, a world example today of what the church in Corinth was like. Um, the people really prided themselves on how much worldly wisdom they had, uh, and it really shaped who they were and this idea that they had some type of self-sufficiency. Um, they were known to be really eloquent public speakers. Uh, they were known to be trained to completely disassemble or disarm the argument of people that were bringing something against their opposing point of view, or that opposed their point of view. And this church had been gripped very profoundly by a love of, of worldly things, worldly wisdom, in vogue culture, and it caused some serious divisions in unity. And Chloe writes back to Paul and says, hey, we got some big issues over here in Corinth. And Paul's addressing some of those things. Um, and everything that we've kind of been working through through chapter three, three some of that comes together uh, today. Um, would you pray with me as we jump in? If you pray for me, I'll pray for you. Just pray that God would, would open our hearts to receive this today. Um, God, we lift up who we are to you today. We surrender anything that might uh, keep us from engaging with your word. God, I pray that you uh, just remove the calluses from our heart, that we may experience you in a fresh new way this morning. God, that we could check ourselves and check our ego in a way that's uh, just not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking less about us and more about you. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, anybody here a, a fan of the game Scrabble? Yeah. I got a woo. I didn't, didn't think I'd get a Scrabble woo, but thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Hey, I have fond memories of sitting at the table and playing Scrabble with family. And maybe you do too. I mean, We'd all be sitting at the kitchen table, specifically my grandma and grandpa Merrill's house. I remember like going over holidays and like trying to beat 
beat Grandpa Kent in, in Scrabble, and the dude was a walking dictionary, you know? He just pulled stuff out you wouldn't even believe. But we, there we were. And, you know, it's like the blessing and the curse of the X's and the Q's and the Z's and sometimes the J's and how you strategically put those on the map to make a word where you can get the most points. And I'll be honest with you, I, I was horrible at spelling as a kid. Like, hooked on phonics did not work for me, all right? It was, it was a bad deal. And so Scrabble was one of those things where they actually, you know, people of authority in my life used this game to, you know, they gamified learning to help me with spelling, and I was learning and just didn't even know it, which is really great. I recently read a really fascinating article about a guy who won the World Scrabble Championships in the French language, right? Now, that may not sound super impressive, but this is like a really competitive thing. It's like the National Spelling Bee. And what's even more crazy is that there are about double the number of words that are available in the French language for Scrabble as there are for the English language. Almost 400,000 words that are available in, in, in French Scrabble. And there was a guy named Nigel Richards who won the French World Championship of Scrabble. Probably the most remarkable thing about his story is that he didn't speak a lick of French. He was a natural English speaker from New Zealand. And whenever he showed up to the French competition, the, the French players actually were making fun of him because he couldn't pronounce the words that he was putting on the board. He had just memorized what they were, how to play them, and what order to do it. Here's a guy who completely upended what it looks like to play this game. Can you imagine just memorizing a random set of letters in order to score points in a game? The article went on to say, this is like uh, Tiger Woods picking up a tennis racket and winning Wimbledon six months later. Kind of the, the, the uh, comparison there. What most people would consider to be an absolutely foolish way to do this thing, he has mastered and he's done it time and time again. In a way, it's like what Paul is telling us at the very beginning of this passage today and in the Corinthian church. He's saying, like, the wisdom of the world is, like, completely wrong. It's foolish. And don't think that you can be wise just because you're relevant. Just because this is the way that everybody does it, that they've always done it, doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it, doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it. What's happening here is that there are a lot of people who are trying to keep up with the trends of the world and their friends around them, and Paul is shaking them up. Okay, so let's dive into Scripture. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to go to the 18th verse, the third chapter. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Man, a lot to unpack there. So, the first thing is, is, is uh, there are two directives in that first part. Don't be deceived and let the wise become a fool. 
Verse 18 again, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What does that mean? What does he, he mean when he says, become a fool in order to become wise? Again, it seems like a contradiction. He means to look away and forsake all the world, says that you need to have and what you need to be in order to just be acceptable, in order to be superior, in order to be advanced. You know, how many times have you walked into a room and you tried to read the room? Or you try to get validation from people in your peer group? He's saying, look away from the lie that we are enough or that we ever could be enough. Forsake the pride of what the world says you should be able to figure out on your own. This is on you. And let the humility of a crucified Jesus seep into every part of who you are and melt your pride. The humility of God is a judgment on human pride. Think about that. The humility of God is a judgment on human pride. The weakness of God is a judgment on the human illusions of how strong we are. And then the apparent foolishness, apparent foolishness of God is a judgment on the human illusions of strength. Again, why in the world would the creator of the universe humble himself and go to the cross and die a humiliating, painful death? That's apparent foolishness to the world. To become a fool is to look at the wisdom of God in a crucified Christ and declare that in him and him alone I find my identity, my covering, my worth, my security, and my way in this world. That seems foolish. And let me be clear, to become a fool is to not become foolish, right? That's what the world thinks. To become a fool is not to become foolish. It's to look upon and give your allegiance to something that the world says this shouldn't work the way that it does, right? What the Jews saw as a scandal. The Messiah that we got was not the one the Jews were expecting. They're expecting someone to draw their sword and to conquer the Roman Empire who was occupying them. The Greeks saw as completely foolish. The Romans saw as weak. And to be honest, what the world today sees as something that's completely antiquated and even oppressive and small-brained. There are, in, in, especially in, as our culture in this country advances, there are more and more people who will tell you that the, the message of Christianity is foolishness. And it's probably one of the best compliments you could receive if someone called you a fool. Again, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Right? Paul, the man who is writing these words, is actually a really great example of what it means to become a fool in the eyes of the world, yet to be found wise in the eyes of God. Of God. You guys remember the Paul story? Right? He had everything working for him. He had everything in this world, and then Jesus happened to him on the road to Damascus. Completely blew him up. Completely turned around everything that he thought he was, that he thought he was accomplishing. Here's a, here's a Jewish man, both in ethnicity and religion. He has a pure pedigree. He has a social status and respect of all the people who are around him, the best education of his day. And by, by all appearance, this guy 
was going to be the next super pastor, right? He was going to be the next celebrity pastor. He had everything working out for him. And then Jesus happened. I love this scripture from Philippians 3. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This next part, though. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had everything. And it's not that his past or his pedigree is bad, but what he is saying is that the real Christianity is one where even good stuff is released and let go if it means having more of Jesus and being more dependent on the deep wisdom of God and his cross and rising, right? And man, let me tell you, uh, it's, it's sometimes very, very painful one of the bravest prayers I think we can pray is that we have more God in our lives or Jesus occupies us more because what happens is, is he has to scoop you out to replace himself inside of you. And sometimes that's a really, really painful process and Paul's a great example of that, man. He then goes on to say in uh, uh, the third chapter here in Corinthians, so let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul's wrapping up this section on division and church leadership, and he circles back to language he used previously to really drive home his point, but in juxtaposition. In verse 19, he says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Not the first folly, Right? We've heard that before in the first chapter where in verse 18 he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <laughs> Let no one deceive himself. I imagine that Paul is probably saying this with a little bit of sarcasm, you know? Oh, you're so smart, you know? But if you think about what Jesus taught us, it was so counterintuitive and still is. Even though we hear it over and over and over again, it's so counterintuitive to the wisdom of the world. Hey, go sell everything that you have. Get rid of all of your safety and all of your security that you have in this world and come and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it, will find it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We said in confession today, here, here it is, the wisdom of man can unfold the soul and achieve peace. The strength of man can unlock the good life. You can't work hard enough to make it. And the effort of us as men alone 
can't work its way into God's good graces. There's nothing that we can do. But man, do we try. Do we try and try and try and do we hang it over our heads sometimes? And you might even hear that and there's something rising up in you and you're like, no, I disagree with that because I'm where I am today because of my hard work or my achievement. I'm, I'm living according to what I see as right and good in my own morality and it's worked out for me so far. I think it's okay. And Paul actually anticipates this sentiment coming from people. And he, so he addresses it in verse seven. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did receive it? Where do you think that you got anything that you have that's turned into anything positive in your life? Your gifting, your skill, your instincts, your strength, your know how to do the stuff, which even leads to your achievement in life, your title, your degree, your fill in the blank. I mean, whatever you got there. The, 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 the crazy thing I think about in, in this, where my mind leads me, is that even what we know is all a part of the creation of God. Science itself, everything that we have understand about physics, medicine, engineering, the cosmos, all of that is what has been revealed to us about the creation that God has made us a part of. And so when we talk about where Paul is with boastness and factionalism and pride, man, what he's trying to tell us is that this is really destructive to everyone. Whenever we have division, whenever you're the person creating division, it destroys you. If left unchecked, it can destroy the church. And remember, at the end of last week, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. Really, really stark warning that came at the end of our scripture last week. And man, he's, he's trying to tell us that there's no need for denominations to exist based on a cult of personality or to insist that Paul is yours and Apollos is mine or I follow this person or that person because they baptized me or it's the first place I heard the gospel. He says, if you are in Christ, everything belongs to you. And he means everything because then he lists it. He says, human leaders, life, death, the present, the future, the entire world. He's not just floating everything out there like, oh, you'll have every, no, he's, he's going and he's listing the things that will you ha you'll have. You know, I think at times, it blows my mind, we get so caught up to think that our inheritance is so small, you know, that it's not everything, and maybe that's because everything is really hard to comprehend. It reminds me of, um, it reminds me of Genesis 13, where Abraham knows what the promise of God is for him and for his family, and so he lets Lot pick out whatever land he wants. Because he has a promise from God that his inhabitants will fill the earth like the dust. Right, he knows that he has a promise, he's clinging to that promise, and so man, Lot, you can have whatever you want to. We all know how it works out for Lot. And so we fight and whine like children. <laughs> sometimes over, over our inheritance. But a promise from God says that he would give us, this promise from God says he would give us everything. And that's why, you know, Paul ends a really heavy chapter with this idea that all things are yours and you are, you are of Christ and Christ is of God's.
So the next thing I really, like, there's a lot in this. I feel like there are four topics that I, we just don't even have the time to dive in today. And so, you know, the first one was like the wisdom of the world. I want to move into uh, an invitation that Paul gives us for a transformed view of ourself. And I think this is really important because Paul was a man of really incredible stature. Like, you could argue that he's one of the top ten most influential people ever to live on the earth. But yet, in 1 Timothy, he says, uh, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Let that sink in for a little bit. Not that I was chief, but I am chief, or I am the worst. Man, that's, that's way off my map, right? Somebody of, of that scale to be kind of in that vein of like, hey, I'm, I'm a wretch, and I've been saved. To have that much confidence, and then volunteering opinion that they're like one of the worst people you've ever met. And I wish that I could do that. I wish I had more of that. But I, I really don't, and you know, the reason why is because I'm consistently judging myself. And I'm allowing what other people, what I think other people think about me in order to affect my opinion of myself. But Paul refuses to do that. He also refuses to let the Corinthians do that. In verse three, chapter four, he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive a condemnation from God. I think what Paul's saying here is pretty astounding. I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. It's not up to me. That's, that's new. That's, uh, you know, for a while, whenever I was in my mid-20s, there was like this epidemic of only God can judge me tattoos that went on people's bodies. I think that's really missing the point here. It's really easy to miss. What Paul is telling us is that he's finally found a place where a lot of us strive to be. And that's getting out of our own way. Right? It's getting out of our own way. He's reached a place where his wants, his needs, his desires are no longer the captain of his heart's ship. They're no longer steering the boat. He's no longer thinking about himself. In Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, there's this really beautiful observation about gospel humility at the end of his chapter on pride. I mean, if you haven't picked up this book, I'd highly recommend that you do. Um, he says that if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from that meeting thinking as if they were humble. They would not be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. It's reverse pride. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but it is thinking of myself less. Thinking of myself less. That's what Paul's doing here. He's getting himself out of the way. So how do we do that? How do we join in that? It's, it's really interesting uh, in the Corinthian passage that the word acquitted or innocent, depending on your translation, comes from the same word that he uses throughout Romans and Galatians that there is translated as to justify. That was kind of mind-blowing to me, that, that that's kind of the same concept here. 
that goes in to justify. He's saying that even if his conscience is clear, it doesn't justify him. Even if he feels like he's done nothing wrong, it's not up to him, right? Paul knows that the real verdict against him has nothing to do about what he thinks about himself or the court of popular opinion, how other people perceive him. He knows that the real verdict is already in. And man, this is beautiful because only the gospel of Jesus gives the verdict before the actual performance. Only the gospel of Jesus doesn't require anything from you. People who are non-believers say that they get their self-worth from their actions or how they treat other people. People, If you're a good enough person and lead a good enough life, then people will think you're okay. For Buddhists and Muslims too, performance is what leads to the verdict. And that means that every day you are on trial and you're subject to the opinions and the thoughts of those who are around you. And man, that's a big problem. That's a, it's a big problem. It's hard to reconcile. The beauty and the hope is, is that in Christianity with Jesus, the moment that we believe, God adopts us into his family. We are grafted into the vine. We're no longer a slave. This is one you've all heard, Romans 8, 1. And there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's answer here is that there's no longer a courtroom. You weren't even even involved in a trial. Instead, it was Jesus who was tried and beaten and killed. Not me, not you. He took the condemnation that we deserve. He faced the trial that should have been ours, so we don't have to face it anymore. So I simply need to ask that God would accept me because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done. And the only person whose opinion counts looks at me and he finds me more valuable than all the treasure on this entire earth. That sounds really great, right? And I know, like, I'm I'm preaching to myself here. I'm in the same boat. And maybe you're in a different spot than what I've said today. And you believe the gospel and you believe the gospel for years, but every day you find yourself being sucked back into the courtroom. Man, I do. I care about you know, what other people think about me, I care, you know, I try to somehow fall into this trap of earning my salvation over and over again through my deeds. I get enmeshed with my life and ministry. I, I just, there's, there's so much there, right? There's so much feeling. And maybe you don't feel like Paul does. I know there are a lot of times I don't. And all I can say is in those moments, you have to relive the gospel. You have to, you have to relive the gospel. Whenever you mess up, whenever you fall in your daily life, you come to church, you pray, whatever, you have to remember what, what, what has happened on your behalf. I hope this week you'll remember Paul saying, I don't care what you think and I don't even care what I think because it's, it's not up to me. What I've done is not the reason why I'm justified. So when you're encountered in those moments of doubt this week, whenever you are blindsided by the court of popular opinion, just remember the gospel and remember that uh, you don't have to be there. The verdict is in. All right, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you um, that you have so generously blessed us. God, that... um, 
you would continue to shape our hearts, that we wouldn't trust in worldly wisdom, that the things of this world would not be our rock and our cornerstone, but instead we would look to you. And I pray that um, we could not think less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less, God, and instead focus on, on you and your goodness and your nearness to us. Holy Spirit, remind us consistently um, of, of the good work of Jesus and that it is finished and that there is no condemnation. God, we, we lift ourselves up to you. We say we are yours. In your name we pray, amen.